If you want to follow along, our scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, on page 950 in your Bibles. Please note with me that the passage is also a prayer at the end, as has already been noted. So we shall read it prayerfully, I hope. And by the way, the prayer of illumination is a hymn based on this passage. Will you join me now in prayer? Holy Spirit, God's own fullness, school us in Christ's powerful light. Teach a love surpassing knowledge. Be to us his living breath. Thriving in love's glorious vastness, soaring all the length and height. May we know him and his pleasure, resting in the depth and breath. Amen. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. There are copies of the sermon manuscript available. Professor Jeff Harden's handing them out over there. You might want to keep your Bibles open to Ephesians for this sermon. And uh, just a few acknowledgments. Um, I know tears sometimes come out of a deep and hard place, but it's good to be in a worship service where you see people shedding tears when they join a church or when they pray a prayer that we feel the reality of God's love and our need of it. Uh, So that's a blessing to me. And it's a blessing to be in a church that sings so well. Just kudos to all of you when you come in right on key after singing an a cappella stanza. Not every congregation can do that. (laughs) And thanks to Heather and... Sydney and Nathan and Micah for the music this morning. The offertory was so good. Was that Micah's arrangement? Yeah. We're kind of blessed. 
And every week, so many of you offer your gifts in such wonderful ways. It's just really a good thing to be part of this little community. So I just wanted to share that. I'm feeling blessed. And I hope that our visitors here today feel blessed and feel the love of God through us as well. Friends of Jesus, that's what you are. Not just brothers and sisters of Jesus, which is incredible. Friends, he says, you're my friends because I'm letting you in on what I'm doing. I remember the first time a theological question made me laugh. Most of you have probably heard some version of this, maybe way back when you were even in Sunday school. But the first time I heard it, I was was in my late teens, a recent convert to Christianity. And someone said, if God can do everything, is he able to make a rock so big that even he can't pick it up? Anybody heard that before? Is there some, can, can God create situations that God can't be in control of? You don't really have to think about that too long because it's just not true that God can do everything. The church doesn't teach that God can do everything. God can't lie. God can't sin. And God can't create a reality that he's not in control of. So that little amusing question is a paradox. It's a cute little theological puzzle, though it raises some real and substantial issues. But this morning's passage is also full of paradox, stuff that you have to puzzle over. But it's much more serious than that question that made me laugh. And it's not just puzzling, it's genuinely mysterious, serious and mysterious. Paul's trying to open our eyes to a genuine mystery or a whole set of mysteries rooted in God and and God's being and in God's work, helping us to comprehend things that have been hidden for long ages, things that even angels have longed to look into and that are now being revealed to us. So in the prayer we heard this morning, It almost seems like Paul is asking God to do things that even God couldn't do. To enable finite human beings like us to grasp the boundaries of an infinite grace. To make us able to know a love that surpasses knowledge. To fill mere humanity with all the fullness of God. Could even God do that? Obviously, we need to give that some thought. But we can't just think about what Paul is asking and the propositional puzzles. We need to understand also why Paul is praying these things. And we need to pay some attention to how Paul is praying, especially that doxology, that that song of praise that Paul ends this prayer with. So those three things are what this sermon is about, the why, the what, and the how of this apostolic prayer. Why is Paul praying? What is he praying for? And how does he actually pray? First words we heard this morning were the words for this reason. That's a pretty good clue 
that we need to back up at least a sentence or two, that we need to think about what Paul has just been saying. We're picking up in the middle of a letter, and we kind of skipped all of the preface to this prayer. But before this, Paul was talking about his calling as an apostle and how that calling was working itself out in his relationship with the church in Ephesus. And let me say two things about what Paul said in describing his calling. First of all, Paul was very aware that he was appointed to make known the mystery of God's plan. Paul always understood himself as the bearer of a mystery. He, he, he preaches about things like the way God chose one people, the Jews, to save all the peoples of the earth. So what looks like an act of exclusion becomes a great inclusion. About how God used the death of his son to bring life to the world. So that what looks like an end is a beginning. About the way Jesus took on himself the guilt of the whole world so that he could share God's holiness with us. So that something ugly becomes something beautiful. Here's how Paul puts it in one of his letters. This is in 2 Corinthians. God made the one who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In case you don't realize it, that's a mystery. It's a pretty hard thing to pull off. Only God could do that. The, only, the, the other thing that Paul understood about his calling is that it would entail suffering. Maybe you know the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Paul was on a mission to eradicate the church, this heretical bunch of Jews that claimed that Jesus Christ, the crucified, was actually the Messiah. But on his way to Damascus, where he would hope to snuff out the spread of this this sect that followed Jesus, Jesus actually met him and appeared to him face to face and struck him blind and said, his name was Saul at the time, Jesus gave him the new name Paul, but he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting footnote, to persecute his followers is to persecute him. And then Jesus went to one of those persecuted followers named Ananias, and he said, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul and lay hands on him so that he may restore his sight. And Ananias said something, I'm sure very respectful, but a, a version of, are you serious? You want me to go to that guy? And don't you know, I mean, this, these are our weird prayers sometimes when we think we're telling God something that God doesn't already know, right? But don't you know who that is? And Jesus said, yeah, I'll tell you who he is. He's my chosen servant. I've chosen him to bring my name before kings, before Gentiles, and the people of Israel. And I myself will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. Right there at the very beginning of Paul's call. No illusions. So here's what Paul has been saying about himself to this church in Ephesus. I could summarize it by what Paul says in Ephesians 3, this chapter we're in right now, verse 1 and verse 5. I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. 
for the sake of you Gentiles. And a few sentences later, he says this, I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. And that's where we pick up this morning. For this reason, Paul is concerned. Paul is praying that the Ephesian church will not lose heart because of the way Paul is suffering. In case you don't remember, Paul's writing this letter from a prison cell. This is one of his prison epistles. And as he sits there in jail, Paul's not worried about himself. He's worried that the Ephesian Christians are going to get discouraged because of these things that are happening to him. Because his apostolic ministry is going to be hindered. Because the work of the Lord is going to be stopped. Well, no, it wasn't stopped, was it? But that's what's on Paul's mind as he prays this prayer. He's worried that the church will get discouraged. So what does Paul ask God to do so that this church will not get discouraged? What is Paul praying for? That's what I want to talk about next. This prayer is a little bit complicated grammatically. I'm resisting everything in me wants to go into the grammar. That's my thing. Verses 14 through 19 happen to be one long, incredible sentence in Greek. But I want to just break it down, not grammatically, but thematically, into four things that Paul asks God to do for these believers. And each one gets more amazing than the one before. So I'll just comment briefly on each one. First, that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through God's Spirit. That's a pretty obvious thing to ask on behalf of people who are in danger of being discouraged. Strength. May God give you strength. It's one of the first Dutch words I learned as I came into this Dutch Reformed tradition. People would always say to each other in trouble, sterkte, strength. May God give you strength. Paul goes a little bit Farther and deeper than just a one-word line. May God strengthen you with power by His Spirit in your inner being. That's the order of things in Greek. And it's that last phrase that I want to take a little bit of a closer look at. In your inner being. Paul's not just talking about our emotions, how we feel about all this. He's not just talking about our truest selves or something like that. When Paul talks about our inner being, and he uses that word eso in Greek, interior. He's talking about the part of us that God has made alive so that we participate already now in the new creation that begins with the resurrection of Jesus. You can go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 5, which we studied a few weeks ago. Verse 1, you were dead. And your trespasses and sins. Verse 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And now Paul is praying that, Paul, that, that God will strengthen this new creation life in us by his spirit. With power. We need to nurture that part of us. That's actively responsive to the Holy Spirit. That's... that's supposed to grow and grow until it completely supplants the old 
fallenness of ourselves. That won't happen completely in this world, but, but that's the part of ourselves that we need to feed, and that's the part that Paul's praying for. Second, that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith until you have become rooted and grounded in love. <clears throat> in a sneaky way, I'm kind of retranslating the Greek there a little bit, but I think that's the real force of this prayer. We already have Christ, but we need to become, we need to make our lives so that Christ is so at home in us, and Christ needs to become so at home in us that we have become deeply rooted and grounded in his love, that we rest on that love as our foundation. Those are, for those of you who are grammar geeks like me, those are perfect passive participles in Greek, until you have become rooted and are rooted, until you have been built on the foundation. Those, the words that dominate this part of the prayer are a verb that comes from the Greek word for root and a verb that comes from the Greek word for foundation. They call to mind two of the most common metaphors for the church in the New Testament, a plant that bears fruit because it has roots and grace, and a building in which God can be at home because it's built on the foundation of Christ. So the first part of this prayer is about God's work to form our inner being and nurture our inner being where our true life is. The second part is about forming our hearts, the desires and motivations and everything else that shapes our life and our behavior and our hope. And the next part that we haven't gotten to yet, we're going to get to now, is about our minds and our imaginations. The pictures of reality that help us make sense of what's going on and where we fit in to the world and to God's purposes. And this is where Paul's prayer gets really incredible and paradoxical and mysterious and kind of impossible. I pray that you may have the power, because it's going to take power. Pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints, with all God's people, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Kind of reminds me of that spiritual song. So high you can't get over it. This isn't trivial. There's, there's just no way around it, no way through it. And Paul's thought just trails off here. Our translation kind of supplies an, a, a, a prepositional phrase, the height and the length and the breadth and the depth of Christ's love. Paul doesn't do that. Paul just ends there. He's lost in contemplation of a mystery, and he wants to give us a vision for this vastness of God's whatever. God's power, God's mercy, God's grace, God's being, God's love, God's everything. I, I want you to have power to see that there's no limit out there. It is so high you can't get over it, and so wide you can't get around it, and so deep you can't get under it. And I pray, finally, no, not finally, next to finally, that you may know, this is another knowledge-based one, that you may know the knowledge-surpassing love of Christ. That's kind of one phrase that Paul creates, the knowledge-surpassing love 
of Christ. How is that even possible? How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? And if you think that's incredible, check out the last thing Paul prays. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Is Paul asking the impossible? Is he asking the nearly impossible? I would say Paul's asking the merely impossible. Because with God, all things are possible, even this. There's nothing that God wants to do that God can't do. Paul seems to think that God wants to pour all of his fullness into mere human beings and into a community that he's created through the grace and the sacrifice and the love of his son. Paul seems to think that God wants to use mere human beings like you and like me to bring glory to himself, a glory that's on a par with the glory that comes through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul seems to think that these things are actually possible. Because we shouldn't just look at why Paul's praying or what he's praying for, but we need to pay attention to how he's praying. He's not just asking God for these merely impossible things. He is praising God because God is able to do these merely impossible things according to the power that is, in fact, already working in us. Let me just read the end of that prayer again. Joe read it so beautifully. Just hear it again. Now to him, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Come on. Come on. I don't want to explain that last part to you. I don't want to mansplain that last part to you. I don't think the words are actually even all that hard to understand, even if you can't quite make them work logically. The meaning behind the words, what these words represent, the thing, the, un, the incomprehensible thing they try to make us comprehend is amazing. I don't think any explanation will help you understand that awesomeness. And for once, the word awesomeness is not an exaggeration. But I do want to make this point. Paul's praying this way because he actually believes what he's saying. He actually believes from his prison cell that God is able to do more than we can ask, more than we can even imagine. And then that power is already even now working in us. And that's why he's willing to endure the things that God is asking to him to endure for the sake of of the gospel. And I think that's one of the connections that we need to make here. Because we're always tempted to ask this kind of question when we read a passage like this. If God is able to do all the things that we believe he's able to do, if God is able to do even more than we can imagine, then why isn't God doing something about all this misery? that we have to live with? Why do so many horrible things still happen? 
Why isn't God doing something about the misery I have to live with? Why isn't God doing something about the misery that each one of us has to live with? Why isn't God answering my prayers, at least not the way I want him to? And I'd be a fool if I tried to explain that to you in some clear and rational way, as if I actually knew the answer to those questions. Because there are things I could say, and I think they'd be true, they might even be helpful, but the truth is I don't really know the reasons why. I don't know what God knows. I don't see what God sees. I don't understand what God understands, though Paul's showing us enough of the mystery here that we have something to hold on to. But I know this much because God has revealed it. He's revealed it through his word. He's revealed it through the ministry and the life of the Apostle Paul. He's revealed it through the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. I know that there is an inescapable connection between suffering and glory. And between glory and suffering. Paul writes this in Romans 8. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's the comfort. And if we're children, then we're heirs with God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We share Christ's inheritance. There's the glory. If in fact, if in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And as Jesus entered into his suffering for the sake of our salvation, this is how he prayed. Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And I think it becomes clear as the mystery unfolds that God will glorify his name again and again, and again, God will glorify his name through his son and through the church. His son is growing and building. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in all generations through the ages of ages. Amen. In this chapter, Ephesians 3 Verse 10, just a few verses before Paul prays this prayer, here's what he says. God's hidden plan, the mystery that's now being revealed, is that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is to bring light out of darkness. God's wisdom is to bring life to humanity through the death of his divine son. God's wisdom is to bring glory to himself out of the shame of the cross and out of the wreckage of the sinful human race, out of the suffering that his people bear because they believe in him, because they trust in his power and they're confident in his goodness that he will right the wrongs, that he will raise the dead, that he will wipe away the tears, that he will heal all the wounds. So I have a theological puzzle for you. Can God create a people so weak and pathetic that only he 
could strengthen them? And then could God take that weak people and bring glory to himself through their suffering and their faith and their patient endurance? Off the script, but this just popped into my mind when the apostle John the author of the book of Revelation, writes from exile in Patmos to the churches in Asia Minor. He says, I am, here's how he understands his own calling and his own identity. I'm your companion in the kingdom and the suffering and the patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus. So can God create a people so weak that it takes a God to save them. And then can God do that in a way that brings glory to himself through all the ages? And the answer to that is yes. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? We've been praying, Lord. We've been praying with Paul. We've been praying for these things, that you will strengthen us in our innermost being, that you will so dwell in our midst that we shall be and shall have become rooted and grounded in your love. Will you open our eyes to behold what cannot be seen, to know a love that cannot be known, and will you fill us? with all the fullness that you have because it's your will and it's your promise and it's the hope you've given us. Sustain us, we pray, by this hope. And to you be glory in your Son and in us forever. In his name we pray and let's all say, Amen.